Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the This Pulp Event Podcast features a presentation by award-winning author, Chet Williamson. Chet was guest of honor at Pulp Fest 2015. He has been writing in the fields of horror, science fiction, and suspense since 1981. His novels include Second Chance, Hunters, Ash Wednesday, Rain, N, Psycho, Sanitarium, an authorized sequel to Robert Bloch's classic novel. He was recorded on August 14, 2015, at Pulp Fest 2015 in Columbus, Ohio. It's good to be here. Every, can everybody hear me? All right, good. Um, when you're asked to, to talk about H.P. Lovecraft and Weird Tales, you wonder what you can say that hasn't already been said thousands and thousands of times. His influence on horror fiction can still be seen today uh, in many writers, such as uh, contemporary writers Laird Barron and Thomas Ligotti and tons of others. Uh, Lovecraft's own work has been reprinted more than ever since nearly all of it is in the public domain. That helps a lot. Um, and new books about Lovecraft and new volumes of, uh, of letters and other essays appear frequently. The most recent is the Variorum Lovecraft from Hippocampus Press, edited by Lovecraftian scholar S.T. Joshi, uh, which in, in the material about the book it says, for the first time, students and scholars of Lovecraft can see at a glance all the textual variants in all relevant appearances of a story, manuscript, first publication in magazines, and first book publications. The result is an illuminating record of the textual history of the tales, along with how Lovecraft significantly revised his stories after initial publication. This may be more Lovecraft than most people want, uh, especially three volumes worth at $180, but I know I am waiting for my long pre-ordered set to come, and I hope it'll be there when I get home from, from Pulpfest. Uh, I'd like to talk about Lovecraft and Weird Tales as they influenced me, both as a writer and uh, as a pulp collector. I probably wouldn't be a writer today if I hadn't read the work of Lovecraft and his disciples when I was young. And I certainly wouldn't be a fan of pulps. As I got more and more into both the pulps and Lovecraft, I began to grow closer to the man himself. Now you all know about the six degrees of separation, how we're all connected to each other by six degrees. I know so-and-so, he knows so-and-so, and on down the line until we get to Kevin Bacon. Um, so, so this talk is primarily about how I got within two degrees of H.P. Lovecraft. But at the same time, I'm going to take some side trips into the world of pulp collecting uh, that pure Lovecraftians might not appreciate as much as I hope the folks attending Pulpfest might. Uh, because whenever you get pulp collectors together, they always have stories to tell, and I'm going to bore you with some of mine. Oh, thank you. Let there be light. Well, to start, I have to go way back to the 50s and Cub Scout paper drives. Um, I imagine my story is going to be like an awful lot of yours who are my age and the baby boomer generation. 
But on the Cub Scout paper drives, where we, you know, it was a very early attempt at recycling, um, people gave away magazines as well as newspapers. And in one stack of offerings, when I was a, a wee lad, was a small pile of mid-1950s digest astounding science fiction. Well, Campbell's astounding was a bit too complex for me. I probably would have been better off with the Harry Bates edited magazines, but I wasn't that lucky. But there was one serial, We Have Fed Our Sea, by Paul Anderson. It was just a two-part serial, later published in book form as The Enemy Stars, that really grabbed my attention, both because of the title, which I found haunting then and, and still do, and also the illustrations, which were quite eerie, uh, almost as eerie as my favorite eerie illustrations of that period when I was a kid, the Fritz Eichenberg woodcuts for a Book of the Month Club Edgar Allan Poe collection that my parents had and that I read over and over and looked at the pictures and that gave me nightmares. Anyone know that volume? Okay, if you ever get a chance to, I'm sure there are tons of them around because it was a Book of the Month Club edition, but Eichenberg was a wonderful woodcut artist and his, the, the one he did for Berenice, which is the Poe story about the guy who takes the teeth out of the dead lady. Like it was, he's down here on the desk and huge looming is this woman with long hair going like that. And it's great and it scared the hell out of me. But, uh, but my main point of entry into the weird tale other than Poe was the paperback book. Now those of us coming of age in the early, uh, in the late 50s and the early 60s, we had 25 and 35 cent treasures galore available to us. And first and foremost for me were the horror anthologies that were brought out by Ballantine Books, the anthologies and the single author collections. I remember the Graveyard Reader, which was edited by Groff Conklin and had Henry Kuttner's The Graveyard Rats, which was from Weird Tales, may have been the first Weird Tales story I ever read, though I didn't know it at the time. Um, Zachary's Midnight Snacks and Zachary's Vulture Stew. Uh, Basil Davenport's Deals with the Devil and Tales to be Told in the Dark. And they had single author collections like John Keir Cross's The Other Passenger and Fritz Leiber's Night Black Agents, Night's Black Agents. And an awful lot of those, uh, of the Leiber stories had originally appeared in Weird Tales. As did the stories in Joseph Payne Brennan's Nine Horrors in a Dream. Uh, the Green Parrot was one of those that really freaked me out. And again, that was a story that first appeared in Weird Tales. There were also the paperback Alfred Hitchcock anthologies, which were filled with horror stories, and Aces Macabre and More Macabre, which were edited by Donald Wolheim. Two Belmont paperbacks that really made an impression on me uh, were Nightmares and More Nightmares by Robert Block. And most of the stories in there were Weird Tales reprints. Now I already knew Block from Psycho because my parents had taken me to see it when I was about 11. <laughs> Boy, they, they had no idea what they were getting into. For, for weeks afterwards it was, Mom, can I turn the hall light on just until you guys come to bed? You know. So, but I, I loved the movie and I got the paperback uh, and read it and became hooked on Robert Block for life. When Ballantyne and Ace started reprinting the Edgar Rice Burroughs stories, 
I got them all. I was just at the right age for those, and I loved them. I bought and read every one. One of my most vivid memories from my youth is reading The Mastermind of Mars in a really boring high school assembly because you could fit those thin paperbacks into your notebooks really easy and just slip them out and go, it's very interesting. But uh, they, were, they were great. Other pulp reprints were becoming available too, like the Doc Savage books, which began in 1964. And I bought them all. Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, to the point I was a sophomore in college, I had gone through one through 50. And at that point, I kind of had enough um, I kept buying them, but I stopped reading them. Uh, so they kept piling up, and I thought, well, if I ever want to read Doc Savage again, I've got all these, and I still have them. Uh, <laughs> no offense to Doc enthusiasts, but they did get a little repetitious when you read them in a row like that. But of the paperbacks I bought then, I still have them all. Uh, many other childhood collectibles are gone. My DC and my Marvel comics uh, from the mid 50s, late 50s, with the first appearance of Supergirl and the first Green Lantern, all gone. The baseball cards, including the 1953 tops, all gone, uh, including those Carl Yastrzemski rookie cards that you found in every darn pack you opened. Who is this <laughs> Yazor Stamsky guy? I don't know. If I kept all those Yastrzemski rookies, I could probably have bought my complete set of Weird Tales by now. But. Um, I am glad, though, that the one thing that stayed was those books. Though they're not as monetarily worthwhile as the things that I let go, they still mean so much more to me because they were responsible for making me part of, of who I am today. And H.P. Uh, and Lovecraft, Robert Bloch, one of Lovecraft's disciples, and Weird Tales did the same. Now, my first full exposure to H.P. Lovecraft was a 1963 Lancer paperback, The Dunwich Horror. It was the one that had face, Dunwich Horror, and these long arms stretching up. And I still adore that, that picture. Uh, oddly enough, the story that made the greatest impression on me was, wasn't one of Lovecraft's tales of cosmic horror, but was in the vault. Uh, I think I, I was a kid and I really liked the suggestively gory ending of the ankles cut off to fill the casket. I hope I didn't spoil that for any of you who haven't read it. <laughs> uh, and um, I became a Lovecraft fan. I, I got my hands on everything that I could that he had written. Then I started to find paperbacks about this guy named Conan uh, by Robert E. Howard. And the year before the Conan paperbacks started coming out, the Lancers, I had read Shadows in Zambula in a paperback collection called The Spell of Seven, edited by Sprague de Camp. And uh, so I was eager for more. So when the Conan books came out, I gobbled them up. The Spell of Seven also had the third of what we think of as the Three Musketeers of Weird Tales, Clark Ashton Smith. His story, The Dark Eidolon, was published in that book. And I really liked that. But Smith was hard to find. You, you could not find his, his work. And later I found more of it in Arkham House books. But whenever I looked at the copyright pages of these paperbacks, I would always see credits to Weird Tales and Arkham House. But what were these things? I, I mean, there was no Weird Tales on the newsstand. My mom and dad didn't have any idea of what I was talking about. There were no Arkham House books 
in the bookstores that I frequented. And there was no internet back then to look this stuff up. Kids today, eh, you know, there it is. But I just didn't know, and I didn't know anyone who knew. But when I was in college, I wandered into uh, a bookstore in New Hope, Pennsylvania, and found for $4 a copy of Clark Ashton Smith's Tales of Science and Sorcery, an Arkham House book, new. And uh, most of the content was science fiction, the stuff that he had published in Wonder Stories and some of the other SF pulps. But it didn't matter to me. I mean, I was just fascinated by, by the writing. And the good thing was that Arkham House's contact information was in the book. So I wrote for their catalog. And at that time, in the late 60s, Arkham House books were cheap. I mean, they were like $4 for a lot of them. The, probably the most expensive ones were the Lovecraft letters, which were started out at $7.50 and then went to about $10 each through the five volumes. So I bought every imprint Arkham House book that I had over the period of, uh, of a year or two. And during that time, I also found my first pulp, which happened to be also my first Weird Tales. It was the August 1935 issue in a used magazine store. It was the only pulp they had. And it had that great Margaret Brundage cover of Dr. Satan, uh, looking particularly satanic. Um, it wasn't a particularly great issue, but it did have a story by Clark Ashton Smith. It had a reprint of uh, In Amundsen's Tent by John Martin Leahy, which is a great story. And uh, it also had a Seabury Quinn Jules de Grandin story. But back then, what issue didn't have a Seabury <laughs> Quinn? <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I was, I was hooked. I, I still have that issue with the penciled 400 right in the middle of the white W. Today, probably people would try and sell it for 400. I don't think they would. But there were no more issues of Weird Tales for a long time. Still, I overdosed on fiction from the magazine, thanks to Robert A.W. Lowndes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Lowndes magazines. Uh, they were digest reprints of tons of stories from Weird Tales and Strange Tales. And, uh, I, I discovered them, I subscribed to them, and I bought all the back issues, that, and they were all available. Uh, they were the Magazine of Horror, Startling Mystery, Weird Terror, and Bizarre Fantasy. Uh, Weird Terror, there were only maybe three of those and two of Bizarre Fantasy. But all told, they made up 59 issues of classic horror fiction. So I taught junior high school at the time. I only taught school for one year. I learned my lesson fast. And, uh, and I didn't have a homeroom. I was in charge of the stage, the theater there, and I had an office. So I didn't have to have a homeroom. And uh, I would hole up in my office, and I turned in my resignation right after Christmas. I said I'd finish the year, but after that I was done. So they didn't bother to observe me anymore. So I just sat in my office and, and read horror stories. It was great. I went through them all. It was wonderful. I got a lot of reading done. So when my wife and I moved back to Pennsylvania in 1973, I, uh, I met a young guy named Barry Trailer, and he, many of you know him. He infected me with this pulp collecting bug, and though I've made some improvement over the years, I, I still have a mild case. I also met Chuck Miller. Uh, he started out publishing, lived very close to me, started out publishing Robert E. Howard uh, chapbooks, and later with Tim Underwood became Underwood Miller, 
publishing. Uh, Chuck died this past year, but I remember sitting with Barry in Chuck's bedroom uh, so many times. Uh, like most collectors, young collectors, he still lived with his parents. Uh, and, and we talked with pulps and we talked writers for hours. I also remember when Chuck had a whole pile of ghost stories pulps for $2 each, and I only bought one. What a chump I was. <laughs> but through Barry, I also made a connection to uh, one of that era's primary pushers to the pulp addicted, Richard Minter. Uh, Rick was an amazing guy, extremely knowledgeable, and I bought a lot of pulps from him, both at the pulp cons I attended back then and through the mail. Uh, he knew what I liked, and he would make lists to tempt me in his very precise handwriting. I still have those letters, and on a few Christmases, uh, Laurie would secretly buy me a, a late 20s weird tales from Rick, and that was one of the greatest presents I, I could imagine, along with Rick's little index cards that he would shove in saying, Jet, I think you'll enjoy this particular story, and yeah, he was, he was a great guy. Um, every now and then I'd be lucky enough to find a small non-minter batch. Uh, a baseball card dealer I knew had a bunch of pulps for which I traded him some 1956 Elvis Presley cards and a few baseball cards that I had left. And, uh, but, but the pulps were nice. There were like three near-mint public enemy and four near-mint uh, secret agent X. So I was very happy, but those things were few and far between. Then in 1973, Lovecraft really started to change things for me. I joined an amateur press association called the Esoteric Order of Dagon. We did not sacrifice babies, but came close. Um, it was made up of Lovecraft fans, and it was fitting since Lovecraft was a member of amateur press associations as well. And how these things would work out, and they still exist, you would, if there were maybe 30, or usually there were about between 20 and 30 members at any one time, the EOD, and we would write and publish our own magazines. I used a mimeograph, uh, a prehistoric mechanism, <laughs> that, that you actually could get high on from smelling that fluid. It was, it was really nice. Uh, and then we would send those copies to the OE, or official editor. He would collate them and send one copy each out to everybody. And then we would uh, make mailing comments on, on articles and things that people wrote. I wrote criticism, I wrote reviews, mailing comments, and I actually even tried my hand at fiction. Um, and it was best forgotten because I, I, re I remember one of them was a terribly politically incorrect version of Robert E. Howard's Red Nails called Pink Nails. And uh, well, some of, us, some of us gathered in person when we could. There was a, a Western Pennsylvania and Ohio contingent and once we met at Scott Connor's house, who was a, a young EODer back then. Scott was still in high school. And a person that I met there was J. Vernon Shea, whose stories I had read in some Arkham House anthologies and in the magazine of horror. But more importantly to me as a Lovecraft person, he had corresponded with Lovecraft when he was 18, 20 years old, from 1931 until Lovecraft's death in 1937 and letters to him were in the Arkham House selected letters thing. So here I was meeting him in person. I was actually within two degrees of Lovecraft. <laughs> so Vernon was a nice guy. He, he was very opinionated. Uh, he was in his 60s. Most of us get opinionated when we get in our 60s. 
And he became a frequent correspondent back in the days when we actually wrote letters instead of uh, sent emails. In 1974, I came across a true pulpster, Arthur J. Burks, who probably wrote over 800 stories for the pulps and uh, who I knew from his Arkham House collection, uh, which was mostly of weird tale stories, black medicine. He lived, I discovered from an article in the newspaper, only about 20 miles away from me in a little town called Paradise, PA. And I should have known he was a local because one of his weird tales stories, later stories, was The Wizard of Burdenhand, which is another small town very close to Paradise and intercourse, but we will not go into that here. Um, unfortunately, the article that I read about him in happened to be his obituary. So that was kind of bad timing. But I did contact his widow, uh, Ruth Burks, very lovely lady, and I asked if I could come down and talk to her about her husband and about his uh, pulp days and everything else. She really didn't know a whole lot because she had married him after the pulp days were over for the most part. Uh, but we still could talk about a number of things and she showed me a painting, it was a cover painting from, uh, what was it, Adventure, yeah, Adventure. And I really liked it, but I thought, I don't want to, you know, be a ghoul here or anything. I wait for some time to pass, and then maybe when I'm in contact with her again, ask if she would be interested in selling it. By the time I got back around to it, Bob Weinberg had already bought it. <laughs> so it just goes to show you, he who hesitates. Uh, I did meet an artist, an old-time pulp fan at a flea market in my hometown of Elizabethtown, the same flea market where I actually found a copy of Lovecraft's The Outsider and Others, the first Arkham House book, without dust jacket for 50 cents. Uh, but his name was Lee Hidley, and he had been a friend of Hannes Bach. Uh, I did buy a, a Frank Paul interior from him from a, a 1941 famous Fantastic Mysteries. Lee was a great guy, a very good artist, and uh, more, not at all an illustrative kind of artist. He was more abstract, but his stuff is really fantastic. In 1975, I went to heaven, along with some of you, I'm sure. The first world fantasy convention in Providence. Um, it was in memory of H.P. Lovecraft, and it was there that I walked among giants. I met Frank Belknap Long, for the first time, who was a close friend and correspondent of Lovecraft's. Uh, there are pictures taken of, of Frank and Lovecraft together. And uh, Frank had many stories published in Weird Tales and the Science Fiction Pulps and lived to a very ripe old age. I met him later at uh, the home of Ben Indick, who was a member of First Fandom and wrote a lot about, uh, about the Pulps and about Lovecraft. And he had gatherings of folks at, at his house. Frank was very frail then and uh, didn't hear too well. He signed one of uh, his Arkham House books to me, and it's inscribed to Shet Williamson, S-H-E-T. I'm just glad that he didn't get the vowel wrong as well. <laughs> um, but at the First World Fantasy Con, I also met Robert Block, Manly Wade Wellman, L. Sprague de Camp, and so many others. I, I was a real fanboy. I, I recorded all the, uh, the panels and speeches, and since we were in Providence, which was Lovecraft's hometown, I went around and saw all the sites, uh, the various houses that he lived in, the Charles Dexter Ward House, Swan Point Cemetery where he's buried, uh, and the Shunned House on Benefit Street. 
And if you would like to see those pictures, I put them up on Flickr, the website F-L-I-C-K-R. And uh, my username is Hunding. I, I guess I was feeling Wagnerian at the time, but it's H-U-N-D-I-N-G. And uh, they're there as First World Fantasy Convention. And uh, almost every, the pictures of all the panels and all the speakers and everything is up there. So just, just last month, I went back to Providence, took my son to Nikon, which is a small horror convention, and uh, we visited a friend who lives on Benefit Street just a few houses down from the shunned house. We went to all the Lovecraft sites since my son had never seen them. Some of the people at the con had gotten permission to go into the John Hay Library and see Lovecraft's original manuscripts. And unfortunately, because I was taking my son around, I wasn't able to do it and was kind of disappointed. When I got home, there was an email for me, complete coincidence. Um, the fellow who was running the exhibition, there's an exhibition of Lovecraft and his disciples at the John Hay from August through December of this year, and he wanted to use a couple of the pictures of, H, uh, of uh, Robert Block from the first World Fantasy Con that he had found on Flickr. And I said, of course I can. And they said, oh my god, we're so delighted. And he said, if you ever come up, let me know, and I'll show you the Lovecraft manuscript. So <laughs> I'm going to get to see them after all, which is great. Speaking of libraries brings me to another old pulp friend uh, with little connection to Lovecraft other than the fact that he really criticized severely one of her particular stories in Weird Tales. Um, a fellow member of the EOD told me that Amelia Reynolds Long was uh, living in Harrisburg. And I was able to track her down and found her working at the archives in the State Museum there. Went over, uh, talked to her, interviewed her for my EOD zine. Wonderful lady, fascinating lady. So many stories about the pulps and, and writing over the years. She really was one of the first women science fiction writers. Uh, and so that was cool. And in, in a lot of things, she had her full name. Rather, In some, they were A.R. Long. But in some, she had the full name of Amelia Reynolds Long. Uh, I reprinted several of her works in my zine with her permission and did a special issue about her when she died. She gave me a number of gifts. And I told her, I really feel like I'd like to pay you for these. But she didn't want anything for them. She had no children. She had never married had no family and she was happy to see them go to somebody who would appreciate them. Uh, she gave me astounding stories and strange stories and a Hugh Rankin original uh, from her 1928 story, The Twin Soul, March 1928 Weird Tales. I treasure that. Um, another gift that she gave me was the visionary press edition of Behind the Evidence, which she wrote as Peter Reynolds. Uh, it was sort of a Romana Clef about uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping. And uh, there is a Lovecraft connection there in that William Crawford, who had Visionary Press, uh, he only published three books from there. And in 1935, the first one was Mars Mountain by Eugene Keyes. The second one was Amelia's Behind the Evidence. And the third one was the only book that ever appeared in Lovecraft's lifetime of his, The Shadow Over Innsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft. Another pulpster I have to tell you about, if just for one anecdote alone, Basil Wells, who was a science fiction writer. And I found him because he lived very close to my wife's family in western Pennsylvania, in a little town, lived kind of out in the hills. And I had seen a lot of his um, 
ads. He took out ads uh, selling science fiction books and, and magazines in some of the ad scenes. So I visited him and, and bought uh, a few things from him. We had a nice chat and bought some astounding, uh, most late 30s astounding. They were in nice shape, but one thing, every one of them had in the upper left-hand corner a small hole all the way through the magazine. I mean, not so you could look through it, but it was a hole visible in every issue. And I said, Basil, what, how, what's the hole from? He said, oh, he said, that was when I used them to insulate my garage. <laughs> Fortunately, they didn't show the wear, so that was good. <laughs> then in 1977, I really struck the kind of vein that every pulp collector dreams of and usually hits once. This was the Victoria Library. Um, my wife and I, she was pregnant with our son, and we went to an auction, as we often did, and it was this little old house in the outskirts of town, and they had pulps. And, oh, it was wonderful, and I bought these pulps, and it was like little, they did them by lots, and there were Red Star, uh, there were amazing quarterlies, there, there was a pile of oddball pulps with uh, the 1936 movie action with Boris Karloff in the Walking Dead cover, and they were great. I got them for a song, the only lot that I passed up was Max Brand Western from the late 40s and early 50s. And I was like, eh, somebody really wanted those. They, they didn't care about the other ones. So I let those go. But after the auction was over, older gentleman comes up to me and says, you really like those pulps, huh? And I said, yes, I did. And turned out that his father, whose name was Henry Nauman, had collected pulps, paperbacks, books, fiction of all kinds, not nonfiction. There was barely a nonfiction book to be found in the house. It was all fiction. And there was a room full of pulps. Uh, I just, you know, my mouth fell open and I said, they were, now admittedly, there were a lot of rebinds. He had taken argosies and taken the cereals and bound them in brown paper and put the cover on the front. But still, there were a lot of magazines that were together. So I made him an offer. I said, look, just take this as an opening bid. If you talk to somebody else, uh, please come back to me to, to let me bid up. And he said, okay. Called me a couple days later and said, yeah, you want them, they're yours, come get them. We filled my father's pickup truck. The bed of the pickup truck was filled with these things. And but it was just heaven. I, I just have never come across a case like that. And uh, I don't know, but not one weird tales. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, so I did get a short story out of it as well called uh, uh, The Bookman, which is in my collection Figures in Rain, available, uh, available at all fine dealers' rooms in which I am sitting. <laughs> so uh, I want to get back in the Lovecraft and Weird Tales track now. I'd like to talk about my next pulpster friend. Anyone who knows pulp science fiction knows the name of Lloyd Arthur Eschbach who wrote science fiction and fantasy over a period of 70 years, from his first pulp story in 1930 until his death in 2003. The Galleon, a small magazine that he published, uh, was the first appearance of Lovecraft's story, The Quest of Iranum. And uh, unfortunately, when I met him, he had loaned the Galleon papers to a Lovecraft scholar who never returned them. And, uh, but Lloyd became a great friend, and I took him to a lot of conventions, and it was great seeing him get back in the con surface and seeing old friends like Dave Kyle and Jack Williamson uh, 
to whom he introduced me, and that really was fun. He was also a gemologist, and he uh, actually made me this ring, which is a black tiger eye, and so I thought I would wear this uh, here to bring a little bit of, of Lloyd Eschbach to the convention. He also did me a very good turn. In the late 70s and early 80s, I had published a number of short stories, and I'd sold to the Twilight Zone and the, the magazines that, uh, that Mike had mentioned, all of which would buy more stories from me. I even sold a humor piece to The New Yorker, uh, which ended up being my most reprinted piece, and uh, a short film was made of it. But I started writing novels, and I wrote two in a row, but I really didn't know what to do with them. I didn't know how to market them. Um, I needed an agent, and Lloyd recommended me to his agent, Jim Allen, who was with the Virginia Kid Agency. Lo uh, uh, Jim sold my first two novels to David Hartwell at Tor Books, and Soulstorm was my first, which was a haunted house story, and Ash Wednesday was the second, which was about a haunted town. Uh, Soulstorm came out in 1986, and that year I also had a story in the, the Black Mass Quarterly, which was that sort of digest thing. They numbered uh, the issues. And I happened to be in New York City and went into the mysterious bookshop to get a copy, because Otto Penzler was ed editing or published, I forget. But uh, I ran into James Elroy, the crime writer, who was there for the exact same reason. And we were both giddy over being in Black Mass, particularly with one with a Dashiell Hammett cover. And our names were in the cover, too. So we were, we were totally psyched about that. Uh, but even more thrilling to a horror pulp fan was what happened in 1990. I had sold a few stories to the revised Weird Tales. Uh, George Sithers and uh, Daryl Schweitzer were editing it then. And they did a special Chet Williamson issue of Weird Tales uh, with three, three new stories and an interview. And uh, there was, I lucked out because I got a Kelly Frias cover. Uh, it was the one that he had done of the Piper from 1951, 52, uh, no, no, here it is, November 50. And he actually repainted that to the way that he had originally wanted it. And if you notice the difference on the copy with uh, the 1990 copy, He's playing a clarinet with all the keys, and on the other one, it's just a little cone-shaped flute in the early one. Uh, it's been a very popular issue, probably not so much because of me as because of the fact that it was the first appearance of Stephen King's story, The Glass Floor, since it had first appeared in a Lounge magazine, one of those digests, all those years before. Uh, I also have reprints available at that aforementioned <laughs> dealer's table. <laughs> well, since then, I've written more uh, original novels, horror, mystery, suspense, work for hire, a couple of books for TSR, a couple of crow novels. Um, I've had two sto short story collections done, but I've only ever written two truly Lovecraftian stories. One was from the papers of Helmut Hecker, which was in Lovecraft's Legacy, an anthology, and the other one was appointed in an anthology edited by Joshi, uh, Black Wings 2. And those are in my uh, collections. But actually, my main influence in writing horror has have been Robert Block and Richard Matheson, uh, two of the writers really most responsible for taking horror out of the Gothic castles and into modern American life. But even though my Lovecraftian stories are minimal, Lovecraft has still had more of an influence on me than I often realize. Uh, I was reading an article on Lovecraft's The Picture in the House, one of the earliest Lovecraft stories that I had read. 
And it mentioned the climactic scene of the blood dripping through the ceiling. And I recalled that in my 1989 novel, Dreamthorpe, I'd written a similar scene in which blood drips through a ceiling onto a velvet hat. And I wondered if Lovecraft's image might have been an influence. But then I remembered, wait a minute, I dreamed that. I actually dreamed that I saw blood dripping down through the ceiling onto a velvet hat. And I wrote that down in a note thinking I could use it in a story someday. So I checked both texts against the other. The picture in the house describes it as a large irregular patch that slowly dripped crimson. And in my book was a large irregular spot from which the blood dripped. <laughs> Don't sue me. <laughs> but it just shows how phrases and images, I think, lodge in your mind, and they may pop up years later, because I'm sure that when I was a kid and read that story, that scene made a terrific impression on me. So I may be influenced by Lovecraft more than I realize. <laughs> My fascination is, uh, uh, with Lovecraft, both as a writer and a man, has remained. Um, I'm still a Lovecraft collector. I've given up trying to get all the weird tales, early weird tales, they're just too expensive for me. I'm a writer. But uh, I have to settle for the Girasol two-volume facsimile set, the weird writings of H.P. Lovecraft instead. But there are always new collections of letters and writings and things like the uh, latest facsimile of uh, William Crawford's Marvel Tales from the 1934-1935 era, which, uh, in which Lovecraft appears. There is a beautiful handmade volume from a guy named Lance Thingmaker, and uh, they're available on uh, uh, eBay. And it's gorgeous. I mean, just handmade, 30 bucks, I think. And I, it's one of the, I love coming across things like that. Total facsimile with the color of the pages, the different paper stocks that Crawford used and everything. Very cool. I also have a number of portraits of, of Lovecraft in my house. I brought a new one home from Nikon a chalk and charcoal, one that I now have hanging in the hall. I have a very kind and permissive wife. I really do. Um, I also have a, a, one of Lovecraft's original postcards and a, a page from the original typescript of The Shadow Over Innsmouth, the first book version, uh, sold by Roy Squires, who was another one of those uh, giants among dealers. Um, so I think I'm, I'm really in it for the long haul. Lovecraft and Weird Tales introduced me to some great people over the years, many who made their bones in the pulps. In addition to those I've mentioned, I've also met Hubie Cave, uh, Joseph Payne Brennan, Fritz Leiber, H. Warner Munn, Edmund Hamilton, Lee Brackett, Donald Wolheim, Lester Del Rey, Walter B. Gibson at pulp cons years ago, and Jack Williamson, who is no relation, unfortunately. Uh, but what's more, I learned a lot about writing from the pulps. One of my prime goals when I write is to try and find an ending that is surprising yet inevitable. And the best writing, the best pulp writing is, is full of that. Recently I was made newly aware of that uh, by reading the complete Thibaut Corday foreign legion stories uh, by Theodore Roscoe, who was just a magnificent plotter, a uh, good writer in general, but his plots are terrific. So. Thanks to Altus Press for, for giving me the opportunity to read those again. So I will end by telling you how uh, being within two degrees of Lovecraft landed me in my latest creative venture. As I said, Robert Bloch was probably my major influence, and Lovecraft was perhaps his. 
Block was kind enough to write blurbs for my first two novels when I was starting out. And I once lovingly introduced him at a Horror Writers uh, of America banquet. We all know that Psycho is his best known book and he wrote two sequels to Psycho. But the first takes place 20 years after Norman Bates goes into the state hospital for the criminally insane. The Robert Block Estate and Macmillan Entertainment wanted someone to write an immediate sequel. Uh, what happens right after the last pages of the original Psycho, and they invited me to write it. Um, it is now finished, it is accepted into production, and next uh, March we'll see the hardcover publication from St. Martin's Press of Psycho Sanitarium. Um, they were pretty large shoes to fill, but I think that Psycho fans will enjoy it, and I put a lot of, uh, of Block Easter eggs in there, little things that Robert Block fans are going to notice where the general reader may not. I was both honored and humbled to, to be able to do the book, just as I've been very honored to, uh, to have been invited to be your guest at, at PulpFest this year. The writers that we recognize and remember at events like this have been instrumental in teaching me and hundreds of other writers their craft. As uh, Robert Block followed in H.P. Lovecraft's footsteps, I like to feel that I'm following in Block's. And every other one of those pulp writers who showed the way from Cleve F. Adams to Arthur Leo Zagat, from uh, adventure to Zeppelin stories. And uh, this gorilla of the gas bag, literary gorilla now, thanks them all, and I thank you for having me. You've been listening to a pulp event podcast brought to you by the Pulp Net when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.